prophets before we move on to something else. Okay, so the minor prophets of the Old Testament. So they're all in the Bible. Include the last 12 books in our English Bibles. Okay, they include Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so each book is named for the prophet who spoke the prophecies in that book. Okay, hold on. I have a, de- I have a detour. If y'all, would have, if y'all read the introduction to the Minor Prophets in your textbook last week, y'all would know that all of these books are in the Bible. So there's that too. Okay. All right. And go. All right. So the Minor Prophets. Uh, why do we call them the Minor Prophets? It's because, they're, it's because they're less important than the Major Prophets? No. No. The only reason we call them the Minor Prophets is because uh, their prophecies are shorter than the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Not because what they wrote is less important. Okay? So we call the minor prophets because of uh, because they wrote way shorter prophecies. Okay? So who are these prophets? Well, we have some information about the prophets, but we actually know very little about each of them. And usually every prophetic book tells us what town the prophet came from, uh, or what kings uh, he served under, but this doesn't happen all the time, and some of the books give even less personal information about its author than where they lived, what town they lived in, what king they served under. Some of them don't hardly give any information about the prophet themselves. And why is that? Well, because in the end, the prophets, uh, they want to present themselves as a relatively unimportant messenger. It's really God's words and his prophecies that they want to put the spotlight on, not themselves. So they're not going to talk about themselves all that much. And so they want people's eyes and ears fixed on the message that they're giving in order to understand the messengers. Okay, so why are the writings of the minor prophets significant to us? Well, the significance of the minor prophets is found in the storyline that is behind them. So during the time of the minor prophets, Israel and Judah, remember the two kingdoms? Two kingdoms split up. We have Israel. Which direction is Israel? The northern or the southern kingdom? The northern kingdom, right. So we have Israel in the north. We have Judah in the south. And both of these nations neglect the covenant that God made with them on Mount Sinai. And now they have failed to remember their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And they have forgotten the mercies of God on them through the covenant. And they have twisted God's law to their own righteous ends. And uh, by this point, uh, God's people are they are not a light among the nations that surround them like God wanted them to be. Instead, they are contributing even more darkness to that region. And so men are outwardly and unapologetically mocking God's name. And then because of all of that, God raises up his prophets to speak to them. Right? He raises up the prophets out of an act of mercy. And through these prophets, God calls his people to repentance. And then he pronounces severe judgments on the wicked. And God, as we see through history, he utterly destroys 
the rival cities. He utterly destroys rival nations and kings and cultures with the horrors of his judgments. And God vows to lead his covenant people away into captivity by the wicked Assyrians and the Babylonians if they don't repent. And in the end, did either of these nations repent? No, no they did not. And so, while we have all that bad news, uh, God coming in judgment and all of that, there's also a promise in the minor prophets of a return from exile under the Persians and a coming salvation, not just of the nation of Israel, but of the whole world. And so the Jewish return to the promised land happens around 459 BC under Ezra and then 444 BC under Nehemiah. And that's during the same time Herodotus is writing his histories far away in Heliconassus. So through this Messiah, through the promise that God gives in the Messiah, God's judgment is going to turn into mercy. And God is going to remember the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one day, all the nations will come to worship the one true God. Do we find those promises fulfilled? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah? For the most part? They're coming to fruition, definitely. They're being fulfilled as we speak. You know, we're way over here across the Atlantic Ocean, and we're worshiping the God of the Bible. So we can see that all the nations are coming to worship the one true God, including our nation. So yes, we see God's promises come to pass, and we'll see more of them come to pass uh, pretty soon. And so through this storyline of the minor prophets, we're going to see how God destroys wickedness in order to establish righteousness. Uh, how, we're going to see how he brings people super low and humbles them, uh, gives them humility before he raises them up and exalts them. And we're going to see how the pattern of death and resurrection is built into the story of his creation. And lastly... Uh, the New Testament picks up on many of the images and metaphors used by the Minor Prophets. What are some images and metaphors that you maybe read this past week in the Minor Prophets that you say, oh, I remember reading this in uh, Revelation or somewhere else in the New Testament, maybe Matthew 24. Any, any of those, um, those analogies and the images and metaphors come to your mind? One is like stars falling. Stars falling, uh, mountains being leveled, stuff like that, right? Well, my point is, is the New Testament picks up on all of that minor prophet talk to describe the fulfillment of all these prophecies in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, okay? So, all right, let's look at the setting of the minor prophets. So under Jeroboam II's reign in Israel... That was around, he reigned from about 793 to 753 B.C. Okay, so uh, at this time, the people of Israel were experiencing God's blessings. They had been uh, faithful to the Lord under King David and Solomon, and even uh, Judah experienced uh, some blessings as they continued to remain faithful to the Lord. But over time, as blessings sometimes tend to do to a people, uh, as they grew in wealth, they grew in pride. And they thought all of this wealth and these blessings 
uh, have come by their own hand and not by God's. And so they begin to grow in wealth, they begin to grow in pride, and then they begin to grow in taking advantage of the poor. And at the same time, the nation of Assyria experienced internal uh, turmoil and problems under the rule of Adad Nirari. He's a very weak ruler. But by uh, 745 BC, Assyria's, uh, his name was uh, Tiglar Pilassar, uh, and the Old Testament calls him Pul, P-U-L. Very interesting name. Yes, very interesting names. Pul, P-U-L. He came to power, and he greatly strengthened Assyria under his rule. And after Pul's rule, his son, uh, Shalmaneser V, ruled Assyria, and he took the northern tribes of Israel captive in 722 B.C., Now, as Israel, the northern tribes, they were being taken captive, it looked as though the Assyrians would take Judah as well. But we read in 2 Kings 18, we read this earlier uh, this year, we read that Hezekiah prayed to the Lord about these Assyrians. And what did God do to the Assyrians that were coming around the bend to to get them? All of them. It was way more than 6,000. It was 185,000. He killed them all in the night, in their sleep. And so God basically stayed his hand of judgment off of Judah because of uh, what Hezekiah did. He sought the Lord. And so uh, over 100 years later, after that time, uh, Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, fought the Assyrians uh, under uh, the entire time of his reign, finally beating the Assyrians in the last year of his rule. And so in Israel, or in Judah, during that time, Josiah, remember him, uh, he was like the last good king of Judah. He instituted a number of short-lived reforms uh, among the people of God. But Nabopolassar's son, who's Nabopolassar's son? This is a name we're all familiar with in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he became king after his father died. And it is under him that Judah is finally led into captivity through three separate deportations to Babylon. One happened in 605 B.C., another one happened later on in 597 B.C., and then another one uh, in 586 B.C. So in that last Babylonian deportation, Judah's capital city, which was? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? Uh, Jerusalem was flattened to the ground. Every building was knocked down. Uh, But within 50 years of the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, a king, a Persian king named Cyrus, uh, took control of Babylon in 539 B.C. And then he later decreed that the Jews were allowed to go back to their promised land. And at about the same time, the Persians and the Medes were waging war against the Scythians, which you could read about in Herodotus. Uh, After this decree of Cyrus, Nehemiah and Ezra returned to to Judah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, because all of that was leveled out, all that was knocked down. And so this would be the period in which the last of the minor prophets ministered to God's people. And by 475 B.C., 
the Jews finished rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And sometime in the following decades, uh, the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, he prophesied. And Malachi, if y'all know, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, this is the last book before the, God would speak again um, through uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ a few hundred years later. So there's about 400 years of silence between Malachi and the time of Christ. Okay, And I wish we had time to do an overview of each of the books of the Minor Prophets, but uh, you could read that in your introduction. Uh, and maybe another time we could do that. Uh, but today we're going to finish up by talking about the worldview of the minor prophets. Okay, so how many of y'all have been betrayed by somebody who's close to you? Anybody? Probably. Um, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Have y'all been betrayed by people, other people in this room? No. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Well, it may not have been you. Why okay. are you? Yeah. Yeah. Caroline was just betrayed by Julia. Oh my goodness. So yeah, so we've often experienced uh, betrayal of a friend or even the betrayal of a family member. Have any, can any of y'all think of uh, maybe a family member betraying your immediate family or somebody in your family? You don't have to, you don't have to mention it or anything, uh, the details, but all of us can probably think of those sorts of things. Uh, you know, what, what are some small betrayals? May include like talking about us behind our backs. Uh, oh, yeah. There's actually one that got really messed, like, kind of mixed up in our family. Do what? It was just like a complication. I feel like there has some difficulties? Okay. Yeah. Well, sure. It's, it's behind your back. Yeah, that's true. So there are little betrayals like that, and then there are gigantic betrayals too. All right, so regardless of the size of the betrayal, the essence of the betrayal is all the same. So the betrayal starts when someone expectedly acts towards another person according to a lie rather than the truth. And so betrayal can start out really small, but over time it can grow into something hurtful and ugly and irrational. And betrayal, like other sins, it works like leaven. Anybody know how leaven in a loaf works? Maybe you've read this in the Bible. A little bit of leaven does what? Makes it rise a lot. Well, it does do that. But I'm, what's the Bible? I, I just said a Bible verse. Can you finish it? A little leaven spoils the whole, the whole loaf. That's one thing Jesus said. A little leaven spoils the whole loaf. Okay, so all of creation bears a relationship to God and one another. And we often call this relationship a covenant, right? So there's, in a covenant, there are certain obligations, there are certain promises, blessings, and curses for disobedience. All of those things are attached to God's covenants. And God tells us in the Bible what those terms and conditions are. For instance, all of creation is required to lovingly serve the triune God and serve one another whether they want to or not. You don't have a choice, right? Uh, or to pick out another example, the relationship of Esau and Jacob should have been enough for Edom to come to Judah's aid later on. You remember the story of, of uh, Edom and Judah as uh, Judah was trying to make their way to the promised land 
uh, Edom was in their way, and Edom wouldn't allow Judah to pass through to get there. They were about to make war with them. Well, who who was uh, Edom's ancestor? Esau. Yeah. Well, uh, just that covenant relationship between Esau and Jacob, covenantally, as their covenantal heads. Remember, Judah was um, Judah was. Uh, Jacob was Judah's covenantal head, and uh, Esau was Edom's. So they were on good terms. So therefore, the, uh, the, the, uh, the people that uh, they represented should have been on good terms. And uh, even when um, Judah was fighting off the Assyrians and fighting off other tribes later on, uh, this enmity continued between Edom and Judah, right? So Edom time and time again refused to come to Judah's aid. And God judged Edom for that. And you can read about that in Obadiah, one of the minor prophets. Um, and, and because even though Ju- uh, Jacob and Esau had been dead for hundreds of years, um, uh, even though they were placed into the same family, simply because that was the way God wanted it, they were still under the covenant obligations of the family. And Edom refusing to act according to the covenant relationship is an act of betrayal, and it brings out God's wrath. And so for Judah and Israel in the Old Testament, God required them to act according to the special covenants that were established with them as God's chosen people. And Judah and Israel had been given countless blessings throughout history. And the biggest one being a special covenant relationship with God. And like traitors who give up their nation to the enemy, like Edom did with Judah, or like the unfaithful spouses who disregard their wedding vows, God's people rebelled against him and they betrayed the covenant relationship that he established. And so during the early years of the minor prophets, God warns his people about harboring sin. Everybody knows what it means to harbor sin? No. Not to hold a grudge. You could harbor a grudge. To harbor something, what's that mean? Sort of to hide it. If a ship is in harbor, what does that mean? It's parked. It's parked. It's safe. It's sitting there. So we basically are giving that ship safe haven. Right? Uh, So if we harbor sin, what are we doing? We're giving it safe haven. We're letting it park in our lives. We're refusing to confess it. We're refusing to uh, to stop doing it. And we just kind of build a fence around it and protect it and uh, regard it as our precious, like you know the ring in Lord of the Rings. Uh, and as you harbor sin and you don't mortify it, you kill, you don't kill it, and you allow it to grow uh, in your life. Um, there's going to be some problems between you and God. And God's covenant people harbored their sins. And God's covenant people shouldn't even be participating in sin, nonetheless harboring it. And God reminds his people that there are curses that are a part of disobeying and breaking the covenant uh, by harboring the sin. And it's a good lesson for all of us. Those of all of us who refuse to repent of our sins are ultimately betraying the very God who gave us life. When we refuse to repent of something that God is against, we're basically siding with the enemy. And we're betraying God who gave us life. Um, 
We are betraying the very God who gave us a nation and the privilege of serving God and being a part of the church and covenant with the church. All of those things, we are basically spitting on all of those blessings and saying, no, I don't want it. I'm going to side with the enemy. But as you know, is this, is this a winning strategy? Nope. No, of course not. Because God says that all sin is going to be dealt with. And it's going to be dealt with in one of two ways. What's one way God deals with sin? Repentance. Huh? Repentance. Sure. Or wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. What are two ways, one of two ways that God deals with sin? Isn't it like judgment? Sin has to be paid for. And what, what was it? Judgment and then it's okay. So I'll help you out. So God either destroys the sin and the sinner and judges them, um, or God judgment must must be done no matter what. It has to be done. So either God can destroy and judge the sin and the sinner, or God can judge Christ for, on the sinner's behalf. And the sinner can find forgiveness of his sin through God's loving kindness because of Jesus. Okay? So either Jesus pays for the sin or the unrepentant sinner pays for the sin. Okay? And so those finding forgiveness by God through Christ are declared righteous by God through faith bearing fruits of repentance, okay? And those refusing to repent are damned. They're damned to hell. And so regardless of how sin is dealt with, the fact is is that God is going to deal with sin. Either way, it has to be dealt with. And sinners might deny that they are covenantally accountable to God. They can deny it all they want, but God still holds them accountable, like for the unrepentant sinner, who is who is their covenant head ultimately? Who are they represented under? Christ. No, nope, not an unrepentant sinner. The devil. Huh? Satan. The devil. It was, yes, he. The devil is certainly contributing to uh, his sinful tendencies. But who represents him? Him No. Covenantally, I've, I've talked about this before. An unrepentant sinner. Yes. Oh. We all are covenantally represented by somebody. Whether it's Jesus or whether it's... Jesus is the second of this. Giving y'all everything in the world. No. No. Jesus has often been referred to as the second... Son. Wait. I know what you're saying, but I'm blinking. Don't blink. The second... I don't want blink. him to tell us because nobody's supposed to do that. I'm not going to look. Dot, dot, dot. No. Okay. Second. Uh, 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 no. Um, amen. <laughs> second. Adam. 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 Thank you. Oh. Yes. yes. <laughs> the second Adam. Yes. So ultimately, God is going to either deal with an unrepentant sinner through Adam did Adam sin? Absolutely. So uh, on his own, he deserves hell and the grave, and so do those he represents. Or we can be represented by Jesus. Okay? Uh, they're covenantally accountable to God, either through Adam or through Jesus. And so God's certain dealing with sin, uh, to someone who's not familiar with 
covenantalism, it can look strange uh, at first glance. You know, for example, uh, in the Minor Prophets, God makes it clear that he preserves a remnant of faithful, repentant people within Israel and Judah. Uh, And though God grants uh, faithful forgiveness for their individual sins, God's faithful men still pass through some of God's judgments alongside the wicked. Why does God do that? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Because they do it as people. Huh? They sin as people. Right, exactly. They sin corporately. Right. Even though you you made the star play of the game for your team, if you didn't score if your team didn't score as many points as the other team, your team loses. Regardless of how well you played. You lost. Same sort of idea with covenantalism. Right? You could be faithful to the Lord and obey God uh, individually, and individually you will receive many blessings. But corporately, you still have to pass through the fire of your of the unrepentant nation that you came from, right? So it still has to happen, uh, you know, because to to many people in an individualistic age, that doesn't sound very fair, does it? You know, shouldn't only the wicked suffer? Shouldn't the righteous be spared? Or uh, to be more specific, could you be a forgiven Israelite and still have the Assyrians take away all your land? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. So in the Minor Prophets, we see this strange picture over and over again. The wicked prosper for a time and uh, at, at the expense of the weak and the righteous. So when God's judgment does fail or does fall on the wicked... Uh, the wicked and the righteous suffer right alongside the wicked. But will this happen this way forever? No, it will not happen like this forever. In due time, God is going to finally bring utter destruction to the wicked, and he raises up his righteous remnant to even better things than they had before. So in the midst of judgment and difficulties... God's righteous people cling to God's promises and they trust in him. That's what we are to do. As our nation apostatizes right now, you know, as a nation, are we worshiping God even though we in this room are? No. no. So what are we to do? Uh, we're going to have to pass through the fires of judgment as well, corporately. So in the midst of those judgments and afflictions, God's righteous, that's us, we should cling to God's promises uh, as we trust him and as he brings us through the hardship. Okay? So that's the one comfort we have. We know that God will bring us through the hardship and we're going to come out even better than we used to be once we get to the other side of it. Do the wicked have that hope? No, they don't. They don't have that hope at all. They, they can't know any comfort and hope. Once they're judged, they are judged utterly. They're judged to the uttermost. And through the sufferings, God is ultimately being kind to his righteous people, but ultimately destroying the ones who betray him. Okay, so in the end, the wicked suffer unto despair, while the righteous also suffer, but they suffer unto glory. So in other words, there can be no glorious resurrection without a death. Okay? There can not be any sort of glorious resurrection without first a death. Humility goes before exaltation. Uh, Is it the proud who inherit the earth? 
No, who inherits the earth? The meek. That's right. So the last end up first, and the first end up last. So God works according to this pattern all throughout the Bible. And, and God's people should find great comfort as they apply this principle to their own lives. And just as a little sin leavens uh, the whole loaf, so too does a little faith in God's promises. I'm almost done. As God promises judgment upon sin and upon wickedness, God promises mercy and blessing to those who repent from their sins and trust in Him. And so the righteous, who God leads into captivity and suffering right along with the wicked, they receive God's promises of a coming Messiah, of a righteous one, who will save them fully into the uttermost. And the Messiah will experience the ultimate suffering, right? Jesus is the ultimate righteous one, but he receives the worst suffering. And we can know that it, that uh, the Lord takes care of us in our suffering because His very own Son did the same thing for us, and God brought Him to glory. Okay, and so even though God's people live in exile from the promised land, God is going to grant an even greater land when the Messiah comes to lead His people out of activity, or not activity, captivity. Excuse me. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's what the people, the remnant during the time of the minor prophets look forward to. They look forward to a time when the Messiah is going to rise up and he's going to lead us out of captivity to a greater land. What great land is that going to be? We know we're on the other side of it. What's that great land? What's the, what, is the type, what, is the, right, what is the type that the promised land pointed to? Instead of it, you know what a type is? It's a small representation of something greater and bigger. So, Israel had the promise of the promised land, and that was the land of Israel, right? But it points to something greater. No, not exactly. The new earth? The whole world, exactly. The whole world. Yep. That's why this whole land is God's land now. It's not the land of the pagans anymore. This is God's land because Jesus is king, right? And so they look forward to the whole earth, and that's what we have. And that's what the faithful remnant was looking forward to, and that's the age in which we now live. And even though God's people, they see the destruction of the temple in the first century, uh, the Messiah is going to establish another temple which is much greater than that of Solomon's temple. And what temple is that? We're all a part of it. There's a greater temple than the physical temple in Jerusalem. We're all bricks. We're all bricks making up that temple. What is that temple called? Heaven. The church. That's exactly right. The church. Yeah. And so <clears throat> we are bricks laid. Remember in, in uh, 1 Peter, it talks about uh, bricks being laid up to build the house of God. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Well, that's the new temple, right? And so when we look at the big and sometimes strange picture of how God conducts history, we might be tempted to think that the betrayals are the most prominent features of it. After all, history is filled with the wickedness of men. And while we have to affirm that that man's sin is a major feature of history, we can't lose the bigger picture of God's justice and loving kindness. 
And so God judges sin and he destroys it so that the righteousness and peace and rest will come into focus. So at the end of human history, the minor prophets tell us that the earth will be filled with the glory of God, not man's sinful betrayals. And so while not at all losing sight of the wickedness of sin, we have to see the larger picture of how God is covering the earth with his righteousness, as Habakkuk 2.14 says, as the waters cover the sea. So in other words, things are not often as they seem in our man, manly wisdom, man-made wisdom, right? But with God's wisdom... As revealed in the Minor Prophets, we see that the rise of the wicked and the rise of the righteous both serve the ends of Almighty God. And all things work together according to God's timing and God's counsel. And Romans 8.28 makes this clear. Um, So this gives God's faithful people a hope. We have hope, guys. We have comfort in times of trouble. In the ups and downs of the centuries, God is bringing His creation into rest, into His rest and His righteousness through Jesus Christ. And against this backdrop, we will see how the just live by faith. We're going to see faith working in history. And of course, this faith isn't a blind trust. How many of you know faith isn't just blind trust? Right? No. It's a faith that believes that God is perfect and that God is good, and He now rules in history. And it's a faith that isn't easily shaken and broken when difficult times come. Um, It's a faith that trusts in the covenant promises received by the minor prophets that find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we can hope in all of those, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the many promises that you've given to us. Thank you for giving us the the Meyer prophets to read and to meditate on and to continue to remember uh, how you work in this world and to continue to thank you for the promises and for the, the inheritance of the whole world for God's people. Father, help us to live and serve you in light of that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.